0: In your Bibles to Galatians 4. By the way, good morning, Northbrook. I have had an interesting week while you're turning there. On last Sunday afternoon, I got my second round of the shingles vaccine. Anybody else here who's had the shingles vaccine? This is it fun, isn't it? Did you guys have fun with it? I, I seem to fall into that category of people who. Um, uh, get the best side effects. So by Monday, I was running a fever of 102, lost my voice, uh, incredible pain from it, and uh, just whined all day on the floor uh, uh, at home, slept a lot. Got over that. Wednesday, we were driving the kids to school. Terry was driving, I was riding, coffee pot was on the floor coffee pot fell over on the floor onto my ankle and uh, leaked on my ankle, and I got second and third degree burns on my ankle. So I am shoeless John Yankee, this morning, and uh, if you see me shifting a lot, it's because if I'm on it too long, it starts to hurt, so I lift it up. So I'm figuring that I should just top the whole week off by getting coronavirus. That that seems like it would just... Uh, solve or make it uh, a a great trio there, but uh, so far I don't. Hopefully you won't experience it. I appreciate um, y'all being, uh, what's not, agreeable is kind of the word, but um, cooperative and supportive, that's the word I want, of the measures we're trying to take. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know if this is a real thing or not. You know, I don't know if it's a repeat of the flu pandemic from back in the early 1900s or if it's nothing. But um, uh, you don't want to overreact to it. You also don't want to just blow it off and act like it's no big deal and then wish you would have done things differently. So we're trying to find um, a happy medium. And all that, and I appreciate your support. Some of you have written, and I appreciate that. And I'm uh, uh, thankful for your cooperative hearts. I'm going to read verses one to seven of Galatians four, and um, and then look at it this morning and see what Paul has to say to us. So I'll read aloud verses one to seven, and invite you to follow along. I mean that the air as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Over the last several weeks and through the first three chapters of this letter, we've been working our way through the response of Paul to the Judaizers' insistence that the Galatian believers be circumcised and submit themselves to the keeping of the Mosaic law for acceptance with God. Again, they, they were not against the gospel in its uh, proclamation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for salvation. Uh, I, I want to keep making that point because there is a misunderstanding that the Judaizers were against the gospel itself. And they would object to that very strongly. They, they preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They simply added to it. They didn't disagree that that was a basis of salvation. It was was what they saw that accomplishing, and then what was required of human beings. They would have objected to the idea that they were only a works, righteousness, salvation uh, group, because they would have said, it is by grace through faith in Jesus. But they would not have said it is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. They were insisting on a Jesus plus. A Jesus plus circumcision and a Jesus plus keeping the law. And again, the the letter here is not written primarily as an argument as to how a person becomes saved, as much as it is an argument of, of how a person remains saved. That a person who simply says, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, but I'm not going to keep... The law, and I'm not going to be circumcised, they would argue that person is not accepted with God. That person is not saved and cannot continue as arguing that they are a believer. And he's writing to believers, arguing with them about the issue of circumcision and of keeping the law. He's approached the issue from several angles. He's argued that, the gospel he proclaimed was communicated to him directly by Jesus. And he didn't make this up. It's not something that's aberrant. It is something that Jesus himself taught him. He's argued that the gospel that he has proclaimed has evidenced itself as true in their lives. It's proven itself by the transformation that's come to them and what they personally have experienced in the Spirit. He's argued that the righteousness before God came through faith in the promises of God. That even so far back as Abram, salvation was not by keeping the law. Salvation was not by circumcision. Circumcision. Salvation was by faith in the promises of God. And, and specifically with Abram, and again, this... this He just kind of throws this out for you and doesn't give you more explanation. But he says that the scriptures preached the gospel to Abram. And he believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Prior to circumcision, prior to the keeping, before the introduction of the law. He argued that the law could not bring life. That the law can only bring guilt and condemnation. And that the law was intended to expose sin, to expose sin's domination over humans, and to guide sinners to Jesus. And in the middle of these arguments, Paul took us back to an important person, an important moment in the history of God's people and God's redemptive plan. He took us back to a person named Abram. And the moment that he took us back to, that, that critical moment in redemptive history, was when God made a covenant, in a sense, with Abram, but Abram didn't participate in the covenant. And Abram was important because God chose him to be the father of a new nation, a new people whose descendants would form into a great nation, God's chosen people. And from Abram would come an heir, one who would bless all the nations. So he's the important person. The important moment was in Genesis 15. God cutting the covenant in Abraham's presence. And the covenant conditioned only upon God's actions. God's faithfulness. Not Abram's. Abram had no responsibility in the covenant, in the keeping of the covenant. It didn't matter what what Abram did, in a sense. He believed. But it was not conditioned upon his keeping of the covenant. And in that moment, with that man... God declared through word and deed that all he had promised would come true, that the blessings of the blessing of the nations through abram 's offspring the inheritance of the land and the great nation that would be his people would all happen someday and Paul returns to This part of his argument in chapter 4 and weaves it into what he previously wrote at the end of chapter 3 where he told us that the law imprisoned everyone under sin. He told us that the law exposes sin's dominion over humanity and thus holds us in a place of captivity, of slavery, controlling us and condemning us in our sin. Humanity's only hope for freedom had to come from a place external to ourselves. Our only hope was for someone to rescue us from our sin and free us from the law and captivity. If someone were to tell you that their keeping of the law earns them something with God, if someone were to tell you that their works earn them something with God, they are contradicting Scripture. Because the law's purpose is to stick its finger in our face and say, you are guilty, you are condemned, you are worthy of nothing but hell. May also remember from Paul's illustration in chapter 3, not only that the law exposed sin's dominion and therefore held us in condemnation, in captivity, may also remember Paul's illustration from last week of the law being a guardian. If you remember, I, I tried to explain what a guardian is from Paul's perspective. We think of a guardian today as someone who has legal responsibility for a child, but that child may or may not be related to them in any way. And all their responsibility is, is to make sure that child is taken care of, cared for, protected. But in Paul's day, a guardian was something much more as a father, if, if, if we were Greeks living in the Greek culture, as a father, I had a responsibility with my son, and only with my son. I wouldn't do this for my daughter. But with my son, I would hire a man who would then be employed by me, as a father, to train my son. What we consider today to be the responsibility of fathers, at least on paper, the responsibility of fathers to invest in and train our children, would be given to a professional, somebody whose that is their job, highly educated, very savvy in the ways of the Greek culture. I would hire that person then to teach my child The educational things that they need from an academic standpoint. I would also have that man teach my child all of the social expectations that would be upon them in the future. So that when that child grew up, he wouldn't be considered socially inept. He'd be unable to navigate through the Greek culture and especially the higher levels of Greek culture. Because the average person couldn't afford to hire this person. This would be a wealthier family that would do that, that would hire this guardian. Slaves in their culture couldn't afford to hire a a guardian for their child. Their child was already destined to be another slave in the family owned by the head of the family. But this man would teach my son how to navigate all through the um, expectations and complexities of the Greek culture. He would make sure he understood philosophy, that he understood Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. All these things would be there. And he would also teach him about the religion because the, the worship of the gods was an important part of the Greek culture. So this... This guardian would teach him all those things. And then this guardian was also there to to control him to a certain extent. But he was to guide him and train him and develop him into a full-fledged, contributing Greek citizen. He was to take an immature child and grow him to be a successful man. So he takes that illustration and then goes down to the end of chapter three and speaks of how when Jesus came, how the law functioned as a guardian. And when Jesus came, there was no need for a guardian anymore, any more than when a father hired a guardian for his son. When his son became of age, there was no longer a need for that guardian. He was free from the guardian. He was considered a man. And he would come into the receiving of what was promised to him as an heir. Paul takes that, speaks of those who have been justified by faith in Jesus, and calls them heirs according to the promise. And now in chapter 4, Paul continues his thoughts on guardians. He's moving forward with those thoughts. And we read again of heirs and slaves. He begins in chapter 4 by saying, I mean that the heir. So he's continuing the thought that he had in chapter 3. And he points out something that might not have been obvious even to his immediate audience, and probably definitely not to us. How's that for, for uh, uh, taking a strong stand? Probably, definitely. Definitely in many ways in their culture this son this heir while waiting for his inheritance which in this case refers to the possessions and privileges rights and responsibilities that would be gained at the time designated by the father this this heir this son was really no different from a slave in the same household When we think of an heir, we think of, uh, when a father dies or a mother dies. Uh, my, my parents are both gone now. You know, my dad died, um, uh, now two years ago when October rolls around. When I was an heir of my dad, I have two other brothers. One of them was an heir of my dad. The other brother was not. My dad did not include him in the trust. But we were heirs. That trust would not be distributed to my brother and I as heirs until my father died. But in that culture, in the Greek culture, being an heir didn't mean that you waited until your father died it referred to an age of maturity when you would become a man and you would share in the Father's possessions, in the Father's status, in the Father's um, business, actually. Until then, again, you have the guardian. And the guardian is teaching you. The guardian is training you until you come of age and that age has been designated by the father so so an heir then is different from an heir now in that the father doesn't die for the child to receive the inheritance there's a day designated when the child is going to be considered mature <coughs> excuse me but during that time Until that day that's designated comes, until that child receives the inheritance, he functions in no greater place than the slave in the household. He has no real rights, he has no power. Essentially, the wealth that exists is not his. And until that day came, none of it belonged to him. In our day, a way of thinking of this might be to think of a son whose father owns a business. He's a wealthy man, owns a large business. He intends one day, that father intends one day, to turn that business over to his son To say, now you are the president of the company, or you own this business. But until that day that he has designated, until that time comes, the son works as an employee along with all the other employees in the company. He's not the head of the company yet. He might even rise to the level of a vice president. He might rise to the level of being seen as the father's right-hand man. But while he's in that role, he's just like all the other employees of the company. And in fact, as he rises through the ranks of that company, he might actually be under some of those other employees. (coughs) And that would have been the case in the Greek culture. That son may have actually been, in a sense, under the authority of slaves. Because slaves then were not the same as slaves now. Slaves then were kind of a hybrid between what we understand typically slaves to be and employees. They, they didn't have their own rights, but they also um, were often paid or reimbursed for what they did. So it was kind of a hybrid situation. But to look at the son and to look at the employees, if you didn't know this man was there, this, this person was the son, you, you were visiting the, the business place, you might assume he's just another one of the slaves. Because he hasn't risen to a level of being, of receiving the inheritance. But there will come a day when he will rise to receive the inheritance and will take over the business and will know, and will live in an existence that is different from the other employees or from the slaves. Paul takes a physical cultural reality and is using it in the spiritual realm. And this is the point that he wants to make here in chapter 4. At one time, all the heirs of Abraham were put under the law. 430 years after Abram, 430 years after he received the promise, the law came and put all of the heirs of Abraham under captivity, put them into slavery. And they continued there for a time, waiting for the day when they would receive the promised inheritance. The heirs of Abraham, like Abraham, believe the promises of God. And they look forward to the receiving of the promises of God and the receiving of the inheritance, the inheritance of the land. But the reality is, is until that day would come when they would receive the promised inheritance, their existence probably didn't feel a lot like they were heirs at all. In fact, they experienced the same slavery to sin that any other person did. And understand that not all of humanity were heirs to the inheritance. And understand that not all the descendants of Abraham are descendants of Abraham, according to Romans. There are some who are ethnically linked to Abraham, who were actually not heirs of the promise. And they lived right alongside others who were ethnically linked to Abraham, who were heirs to the promise. And they all lived in captivity to the slavery of the law. The heirs of Abraham knew the promises of God. They experienced the undeserved blessings of God. But sin still held sway in their life, and the law brought its condemnation, and they experienced living under slavery, and the place of the heir was to believe in and wait for the promise to be fulfilled. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4, something that gets quoted at Christmas, but probably isn't even a Christmas story. But one day, the day came. Paul said, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This verse gets used over and over again at Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, and that comes inside the Christmas cards. And it sounds like Christmas because it speaks of God sent his son born of a woman. But it's actually, I think, pointing to something else or taking in a bigger picture than just Jesus in a manger. But Paul's point is that after centuries of waiting, God fulfilled His promise as freedom came to the enslaved. Paul tells us this happened in the fullness of time. That tells us that God in eternity past not only decreed those who would come to faith in Jesus, as Ephesians tells us, that the... the, That there were those who were chosen in eternity past to be saved. And what we just read this morning in Titus says that God sent Paul Paul to preach the gospel to bring faith to the elect, the ones who were chosen, the heirs. There was that moment, there was a day, there was an hour a moment in time that God had decreed from eternity past, and that moment was when God would fulfill His promises to Abraham and to Abraham's heirs by sending His Son in human flesh as the offspring of Abraham. Jesus, God's beloved Son, God's one and only Son, entered this world, was born under the law to redeem the chosen heirs of Abraham who were condemned and cursed and held captive by the law. Paul uses the same wording in Ephesians chapter 1, the fullness of time. As Paul goes through a list in Ephesians 1 of all the things God has accomplished, that were that were his purposes from eternity past. His plan. His promises. Paul just ticks them off one after another. These are all the things God intended to do. And he's accomplished them in Jesus. In the fullness of time, his plan came to fruition. And there in Ephesians 1, he speaks of the fullness of time, linking it to God's redemptive plan to unite all things in Jesus. All things were not united in Jesus, in heaven and earth, in Jesus, when He was born. All things were united in Jesus when He shed His blood, was buried, and rose from the dead. The redemptive plan was that in the fullness of time, Jesus would hang on a cross Shed his blood for the sins of humanity. He would die. He would be buried in a grave. He would rise from the dead. And he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus redeemed the slaves in the fullness of time, and the redemption price was paid with his blood, bringing forgiveness for our trespasses, which is the word Paul uses there, just like in Galatians chapter 3. Our trespasses, our crossing of the line. And God's plan was bigger than Abraham or his heirs had fathomed. God's plan was not limited to a physical ethnic group. That's where the Judaizers had gone off the rails. Believing that God's redemptive plan was a promise only to the Jews. And that the only way one could be counted into that was to become a Jew or to be born a Jew. But God's purposes were not bound by the genetic donation of Abraham. God's plan was huge. God's plan was astounding. God's redemptive plan from eternity past, His promises to Abraham was to bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, and to make His chosen people not simply the offspring of humans. And this is where Paul makes a massive point. God's redemptive purpose was not simply to make his chosen people the offspring of humans, but the descendants of himself. God's redemptive plan was to make his chosen people also his sons and daughters. Of Himself as God the Father, to make them the brothers and sisters of God the Son, to make them temples of worship where God the Holy Spirit would take up residence. The Judaizers got stuck at keeping the law and they got stuck at circumcision. Because they believed that God's redemptive purpose was to make a Jewish nation. And there's a lot of people still stuck at that today, in the sense of a physical nation in the Middle East. But God's people are not genetically connected to Abraham necessarily. God's people are spiritually connected to Abraham. And they are spiritually the descendants of God the Father first, and spiritual descendants of Abraham second. The point of God's redemptive plan was never to simply create heirs of Abraham, but rather to create heirs of God himself. And Paul says this in Ephesians 1 as well. In him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, Of his glory. So the inheritance is more than dirt on the globe. How we fight over dirt, whether it's our yard or a bunch of sand in the Middle East. The inheritance that God has promised us is more than a patch of dirt somewhere on the globe. The inheritance that God has promised us is more than an ethnicity to boast in. The inheritance that God has promised us is more than even a group of people. like a church family. The inheritance that God promised in the fullness of time in Jesus Christ is to share in the fatherhood of God, to share in the family of God, to share in the power of God. And yeah, there's going to be a day where there will be a place where God will live with His children forever on the new earth, the whole thing. And it belongs to all of us. There is not going to be a mansion that is yours, on a yard that is yours, on a street that's named after you. We will share co-heirs, all of what God has for us. And yes, there will be a day when Jesus will reign over His kingdom in all its fullness. And there will be a day when we as the people of God will live in full happiness on the new earth, freed from sin and His curse. But I want you to understand that the best part of what God has promised to us in the inheritance is ours to enjoy now. To be sons and daughters of God. And as I thought about that, I I again thought of my dad. He's been on my mind a lot this week for some reason and just been missing him this week. I hate to admit this, but when I was younger and immature, I guess I would have to say that I loved my God, my, my dad, but I think I had a tendency to love the inheritance more. I, I, I hate to say that. It tells you something about the kind of person I was when I was younger. But as I got older and as my dad got older I realized he wasn't going to be around forever and there came a day when I got the call that my dad had passed and that set in motion all of the things related to receiving his possessions and it wasn't a small amount it was it was healthy, but I would give all of that in a heartbeat and a lot more to just be able to talk to my dad again. In the moments when life gets difficult and I need advice, I want to talk to my dad. And I can't tell you how many times, and maybe you experienced this if you've lost a parent. I can't tell you how many times I still think oh, I call that oh, I can't just to sit with him while he falls asleep during a golf match and starts snoring and listen to him snore, just to have another day on the golf course with him, as we tease each other back and forth about our bad shots. Just another time to go to Safeway with him to pick up a loaf of bread for something. You know, I, I say that to, to try and make a point that so often we're we're thinking about that inheritance. We don't term it that way, but we're thinking about that inheritance that's coming someday. And we get so wrapped up in streets of gold and walls made out of jewels and angels flittering around and and crowns and how we're going to be dressed and what our house is going to look like and all that stuff. And our songs focus on that. But right now, I'd just like to have my dad. He was my friend. And the reality is, we're going to live in a place that's unbelievable and beyond our wildest imaginations. But the best part of the inheritance we already have, our dad. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see here we have currently what will for eternity be the best part. I guarantee you, when you get there, you're not going to be standing around staring at the walls for a thousand years. Or being enamored with these streets of gold. They're going to be beautiful. But God the Father and God the Son and the God the Holy Spirit are going to be there and all these things are going to seem like asphalt and brick compared to being with them. What Paul wants us to understand is the best part of the inheritance is that God has already adopted us to be His sons and daughters. Through faith in Jesus, the chosen heirs of God become full children of God. And, and I'm going to say something here, that every time I think it, and read it, and I wrote it, I, I honestly feel like I'm saying something that can't be true, honestly. God the Father loves each son and each daughter of His just like He loves Jesus. There was a time when God had one and only one beloved Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, Beloved son. And now God has a massive family. An uncountable number of sons and daughters, and He dearly loves every single one. Just like He loves Jesus. And what Paul. Says here is, is hard to wrap my mind around in some ways. But he says in verse 6, and because you are sons and it's daughters as well, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. I think that's a very interesting phrase. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying. And that word crying means shouting or screaming. Abba, Father. I believe what Paul's point here is is that we have the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts shouting out from our innermost being what we can hardly believe. In the moment that we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has entered us and begins to shout Abba, Father. And we have the privilege of addressing the God of the universe in the same way Jesus does. Not only does God love us the same way that He loves Jesus, but the Spirit of Jesus is in us, the Holy Spirit. There's a little thing about the doctrine of the Trinity that could possibly be popping up right there. But the Holy Spirit moves into us and witnesses to us that we are the sons and daughters of God. I don't have time this morning. You're probably thinking, isn't it somewhere in Romans that Paul talks about Abba, Father? Yes, it is. And if you lay Romans 8 right next to Galatians 4, you're going to find some amazing similarities. I've said several times that Galatians is, is almost a summary form of Romans. And you put those two next to each other right there in that section, and and they're almost identical. There's amazing statements there. But not only does God love us the way we the way he loves Jesus, but the spirit of Jesus is in us, creating a love for God that's the same he has for his father I don't think that Jesus sits at the right hand of the father and goes father your graciousness like royalty is supposed to bow to the king and all that they're friends I don't come I didn't go to my dad's house knock on the door he opens the door and he says my son Jonathan it's good to see you hello father it's good to see you and we go in and have a nice chat with tea He sees me, his eyes well up with tears, mine well up with tears, and we would hug and say, it's so good to see you. And I believe that Jesus the Son sits by God the Father on His throne and speaks to Him in affectionate terms. That's the point of Abba Father. People make a big deal over Daddy or it's this and they fight over that. I don't care. It's supposed to tell us affectionate terms. You can call your dad Father in an affectionate way. Or Daddy or Dad or any other number of terms. I'm Papa to Scarlet and Eden. It's not anything just a word It's the, it's the way it's said and what that signifies. That's the point of a father. We get to use terms of endearment and affection used only by members of the family because we're not slaves anymore. We're the children and heirs of God's soul. All that in mind, I want to encourage you this morning that if you by faith are trusting in Jesus' blood for forgiveness of your sin, please believe that God has forgiven all your sin. And it's true when the Bible says that where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any remembrance of that sin. And as you believe that truth, I want to encourage you to think of your Father Choosing not to remember your sin. Loving you the way he loves Jesus. I want you to enjoy the affection he has for you. And thinking of those things, I want to encourage you to enjoy some time with him. To talk with him. To tell him how hard life is right now. To share your dreams with him. To cry in his presence. To trust him now and for the future. I can't do any of those things with Dan Yonke anymore. But I have a father who can actually do something about those things. And loves me and hears me and wants me to chat with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will through the work of the Holy Spirit through the truth of your word which is alive by your grace cause us to understand the love that you have for us. What is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width which passes all of our understanding. Give us a fresh glimpse into how much you love us. And Father, create in us cause in us a growing love for you, an affection for you, a celebration of what we've already gained in Jesus. If we got nothing else, Father, we have you. Help us to trust in you, help us to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.